Good morning. I'm your host with a brand new jingle just for today. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the June 14th, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. It's still from South Africa, folks. Well, so Maine, Nevada, North Dakota, and South Carolina are holding their primaries today. Whom we vote in determines who does what kind of oversight and what's conducted in the legislative branch. Like right now with the January 6th Oversight Select Committee. So remember the drill, folks. Get the folks you know out there to vote. Orange County's example at 28% turnout, we're not all that proud of. So today, my first guest will be UCI Professor of Global and International Studies, Eve Darian-Smith, bringing her brand new book, Global Burning, Rising Anti-Democracy and the Climate Crisis. Her accessible read is another tome published by an academic who is sufficiently concerned about these times. And in the second segment, Brooke Aston Harper will return to talk about the upcoming play that she's directing at The Wayward Artist, entitled Collection of Rage, A Play in Five Bettys, a play written by Jen Silverman. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Eve Darian-Smith, UCI Professor of Global and International Studies. Her interests include human rights, global governance, international law, post-colonialism, indigenous law and politics, ethnographic approaches, social and legal theory. At her previous appointment at UC Santa Barbara, Eve chaired that university's global and international studies department. Prior to her graduate work, we're hopping around her timeline a wee bit, Eve practiced commercial law in Australia. Her work's been supported by grants from the National Science Foundation, the Vanner Grand Foundation, American Philosophical Society, and the UC Center for New Racial Studies. Her affiliation with the Law and Society Association includes serving on the trustee board. Her publications include Bridging Divides, the Channel Tunnel, and English Legal Identity in the New Europe, Laws of the Post-Colonial, Ethnography and Law, Religion, Race, Rights, Landmarks in the History of Modern Anglo-American Law, Societies in Global Context, Contemporary Approaches in the Global Turn. She completed her Bachelor's of Laws degree at the University of Melbourne, her Master's of Arts at Harvard University, and her PhD at the University of Chicago. She comes to us today from her residence in Laguna Beach. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Eve Darian-Smith. Thank you so much for having me on your program, Claudia. It's been wonderful, this invitation to talk to you about my new book. Yes, well, it's wonderful that you are making time for us. I never forget this, how important everyone's time is. So on this show, we've previously considered, with different guests all over the place, doctrine of discovery, indigenous sovereignty, white supremacy, climate crisis, authoritarian strongman leadership, and yes, wildfire. So I want to congratulate you, Eve, on this publication, your book bringing all these to an intersection in global burning. So you also bring three continents, Australia, North America, and South America, into this intersection. And, and we'll carve out all a few things. We can't carve them all because we want people to be sure to read this to get all the messages and all the data. We're going to, though, move in on what you have found as a very potent through line in using the notion of fire, the phenomenon, the catastrophe of fire. How did you decide this is going to be the theme, the through line? Well, thank you for that introduction and warm welcome. Um, I really became very, very interested in catastrophic wildfires. Um, specifically, you know, I'm Australian. You can hear it in my accent, I'm sure. But I visited my family in Melbourne in December 2019. And these catastrophic, what we call bushfires, had broken out and raged for some months into early 2020. 
Um, and these were on a scale and intensity that Australia, which has you know, always had to deal with uh, bushfires, really no one had ever seen before. So that sort of was a, it's a very personal story. I came back, I live in the United States, have for many years, and of course came back to California, and California also was reeling from enormous uh, catastrophic wildfires. We'd had the campfires the year before in 2000, 2018 that had killed you know, nearly 200 people. And the world's attention also was focused on uh, horrifying fires in the Amazon region, um, mainly in Brazil, but in Latin America. So it was sort of a moment in which I thought these incredible um, fires that really were beyond the, what is considered the norm um, were raging around the world in Australia, in Brazil, in the United States, particularly in the West Coast and California. Um, and I wanted to explore the, what connected these massive fires um, and, and how I could actually paint a picture of this as a global phenomena of catastrophic fires, not just singular discrete events. So, and uh, we have another one, folks. It's the Sheep Fire in Southern California, and that is just mm-hmm. a demonstration of how the metaphor is gaining in momentum and force. And it's also, I, I just pulled up a tweet about that uh, yesterday, that on the debate stage in the not-too-distant future, uh, people are taking their point about being uh, industrial production being wound down, but the fire is spreading to the auditorium, and we need to evacuate. But I'm not finished arguing points. Where, why are you censoring me? So it was, this is, uh, people are using fire to describe what's going on in terms of norms being uh, burned down. And I mean, you get you get to those and we'll and we'll get to some of that. So I just want to, you know, remind people that 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 metaphor is, is capturing the the ferocity, intensity of our institutions everywhere under attack. So we're past the natural occurrences. I mean, when we're looking at climate, it's really I, I don't know what the pie chart would be looking like. It's a it's such a multifactorial climate change phenomenon. So I don't know how to what we can. I want to look at it as the man-made factors are taking up a larger share of the driving of our where we are today. The 421 parts per million carbon in the atmosphere, which is is just extensive. So um, and the curve was bending. We were starting to see that that drop, but with the strong men in in leadership roles around the country, it re it redirected an upward trend. So, let's have you talk about the former president's legacy of jamming up the machinery at EPA and other agencies, packing the judiciary, and tying the nation in knots with his big election lie. That's that's made. Our president, our current president Biden's managing the climate crisis is inordinately more complicated. Absolutely, you're you're absolutely correct. Um, so just before I get on to Biden and the challenges that he faces um, with respect to sort of cleaning up the mess of Donald Trump's um, term as president, I just wanted to, to return to the three countries: Australia and Brazil and the United States, because what my book is trying to show is that not only are these three countries experiencing these horrifying climate uh, catastrophes, but they're also were governed, and and, uh, Brazil um, still is governed, by very uh, far-right, extreme-right-leaning, authoritarian, almost, uh, presidents and prime ministers. And so that was my connection of the three countries, because while they're so-called liberal democracies, uh, they are increasingly run by um, uh, an extreme right-wing um, part of the political spectrum. Now, of course, Trump, um, when he was president, he did take the United States out of the Paris Agreement in 2017, and Biden came in on a platform very much arguing for uh, appropriate uh, climate change response to the emergency that's now very much in front of us. There's no more we can can we deny uh, climate change and climate emergencies. But Biden has a huge, huge uphill battle. So while he took the United States back into the Paris Agreement and very much uh, promoting um, the United States presence at meetings on climate emergency, he really is facing this battle because under Trump, about a hundred pieces of legislation protecting the environment were rolled back and dismantled, um, and people are talking about 50 years of the Environmental Protection Agency's 
ammunition against climate change and pollution and toxicity and water um, uh, poisoning and so on were rolled back under Trump. So Biden has to actually both reinstate much of this legislation and these regulations while also pushing forward a new agenda around climate change. Um, and he has, as I say, an extraordinary uphill battle. We've seen that the the Senate is very, you know, divided, even on issues such as um, gun control, where there seems to be a relative consensus amongst ordinary people that there has to be some sort of uh, new uh, reforms of gun control management. So, you know, in terms of climate change, when you've got the uh, Republican Party very much leaning against bringing in any mitigating legislation and regulations, Biden is in deep, deep trouble in terms of actually following through on his promises around dealing with climate change in the country. So, Eve, I'm just going to um, I'm going to produce you a little bit here on your expression of where the populace is. I mean, you said ordinary people are supporting uh, sensible gun laws. Can we just from now on t- say the broader public instead of ordinary sure. people? Absolutely. I don't want to denigrate because if people see themselves as ordinary, they're, that's, maybe they're not going to turn out and vote next time. So, so anyway, that's... You're absolutely correct. Just, I didn't mean to, to belittle anybody. I'm just no, but, saying those who aren't in political power, um, uh, regular people, perhaps broader public is even better. So with the force I, I want to bring to that, and so when you quote Susan Milthorpe, a National Environment Laws Campaign Manager at the Wilderness Society in Australia, I lost it, Eve, when I read your quoting her, and I'm quoting her, you quoting her, extinction is a choice. So tell us, I mean, you already mentioned a little bit about the um, how fraught that stretch was with those fires, but this that there is a through line from that quote and what you how you arrive at this after detailing the devastation of the fires throughout Australia. Sure. So um, I think people in the United States don't really appreciate the scale of the fires in in Australia in uh, late 2019, early 2020. So there was over 25 million acres burnt right across the eastern part of the country. In comparison, when we had the campfire here in California, only 1.9 million acres were burnt. So it's of a different kind of order in terms of the number of deaths, estimated a, a billion animals were destroyed, of course, you know, iconic animals such as the koala and the kangaroo and so on. But the quote that you um, bring our attention to, that extinction is a choice, what Suzanne Milthorpe, who's at the Wilderness Society in Australia, was pointing to is that people now recognize we are in a climate emergency. It is a human-driven climate emergency. The science is there. The climate science is there. There is almost universal consensus on that climate science around the world from all scientists in all countries, right? That being said, we as a society uh, are making a choice in that we are ignoring the glaring evidence of the catastrophic emergency before us. So in Australia, for instance, you know, there's been 30 years of deregulating environmental protections, Um, A 1999 Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act has been basically gutted, doesn't have any force to actually um, work in preservation and conservation of animals and and landscape and wildlife and so on. In 2020, 240 Australian scientists wrote a letter to Scott Morrison, then the leader of Australia, saying this is a catastrophe, we need to mitigate against climate change. And despite all that, The fires raged out of control. They were predicted many years earlier. So by Suzanne Milthorpe saying extinction is a choice, she's actually saying, once again, that people are making a choice in terms of foolishly disregarding what the science is telling us and what we are all experiencing more regularly, not just people in poorer developing countries, in rich industrialized nations, we're experiencing the effects of climate crisis. Right in terms of floods, catastrophic fires, rising heat, rising oceans, and so on. So it's a it's an emergency that we are you know putting our heads in the sand as it were, and um, our extinction as a species is very much in, in in play here. The fire in the auditorium. It's so yes. 
My guest, if you've just joined us, is UCI Professor of Global and International Studies, Eve Darian-Smith, with her brand new book, Global Burning, Rising Anti-Democracy and the Climate Crisis, published by Stanford University Press. Well, I'm, I'm seeing a pattern here. You've chosen to write a very accessible book. It's pretty short, like our formerly of our UCI Law School, Rick Hassan. He's been writing a lot of short books, too. Cheap Speech at 168 pages, minus all the, you know, the footnotes and everything. Election Meltdown at 138 pages, minus those other footnotes and things. And so yours is right around that number. So please, Eve, talk about this urgency that you're capturing. Is there, I mean, there is a pattern here. Folks are deciding we're going to redirect our attention to mainstream readers, and we we need that urgency to be ever clear, ever accessible. Talk about your decision to move into this, and are you bringing your colleagues with you? Well, you raise a very good point in terms of academic work. Um, I think that there is a sort of wave of feeling amongst academics that we do need to um, talk beyond the ivory tower. I certainly feel that. Um, and I made an explicit decision, as I think many, many more faculty um, and scholars are doing so, to write these short, accessible books so that we're actually talking to a wider public. Um, you know, if, if only your mother and best friend read a book that you've published, it's not doing uh, much good out there in the world. So this is, a, uh, I think, a, an explicit decision by more and more um, scholars, as I say. It was an explicit decision by me to talk to people in a voice that you know, untangles and connects all the dots that can be very complicated. Um, scholars see the, the deep connections, but actually articulating it in a way that speaks to people and makes them realize new connections that they may not have been able to see before is, to me, a very important dimension of the sort of public scholar that I hope uh, more and more people embrace that identity. So, yes, this is a shortish book. It's written for a general public. Um, I think it's a very urgent, urgent message. We typically think of people talking about anti-democracy and authoritarianism around the world as one set of ideas and challenges. And we typically think of climate change and climate emergency as another conversation. And I was explicitly wanting to connect these two lines of thought and people's concerns and say they're connected, they're truly connected. And it is an urgent message. I mean, the international... Um, planet on climate change brought out its latest report only in May saying that we've got about eight years, only eight years to turn around um, our, our greenhouse gas emissions and change the way that we are, you know, engaging in extractive capitalism and using fossil fuels, that we have to actually sort of take a very deliberate and very conscious shift in how we understand the natural world and our relationship to it. Uh, so this is an urgent message. Eight years is not very long. And of course, you know, despite the, the rhetoric and people saying, yes, 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 we must change, um, you know, there are more and more uh, mining leases being released in the wake of the war in Ukraine and Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The world has actually stepped up the production of fossil fuels as uh, the price at the at the gas station for for petrol increases dramatically, so we've, we 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 know the problems, but the world conspires and the challenges of the contemporary geopolitical landscape conspires in a way to undermine these efforts to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. Well, I, you brought several threads I wanted to ask you about, and um, I sort of kept this to myself because I wanted to to get a kind of an immediate kind of a response from you. It's speaking of autocrats and Ukraine, how powerful is Volodymyr Zelensky as an antidote to autocratic rule? We're talking about the, the invasion is generating immense amounts of, of carbon emissions and that 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 every time I see an explosion, you know, on some YouTube, no, I don't go to war porn people. No. But I mean that we're we're reminded constantly how much emissions there are. But is he an antidote to autocratic rule that has sort of reversal of a very pernicious trend around the world? Do you look at him that way? Yes, I think that that he certainly has galvanized um, a European bloc um, against Russia and mobilized people's consciousness about the fragility of democracy and the need to defend democracy. Putin on the on the the threat, the imminent threat of of Russia into past Ukraine into 
um, other parts of Europe, Poland, Hungary, and so on. That really has, I think, shifted the conversation within Europe because, of mm -hmm. course, across all of the European countries, there's a lean towards extreme-right uh, politics with um, many, many uh, neo-Nazi parties and other far-right parties emerging as strong contenders. Um, we can only think of uh, Marine Le Pen, who was a strong contender uh, in the presidential election recently. In rising. She, yeah, her strength is rising. So that we can't, that graph yeah. isn't done, folks. No, that threat is certainly not done. But I do think that the invasion by Russia has helped um, affirm people's general sensibility that democracy is, as I say, both fragile but also very worth protecting. So how this war is going to, to pan out as Europe starts to get, I think, slightly cold feet because the imminence of a real all-out escalating war with Russia and other European countries is sort of at the background. So we don't know how this is going to play out, but I do think that the invasion has helped revitalize some sense of hope and optimism in the power of democratic governance. So bear with me, everybody, including Eve here. I'm going to bring this theme, especially the growing collaboration of autocracies. I want to direct our attention to the municipal level, our Irvine Mayor Farah Khan. Her support of strongman regimes by the company she keeps. So I'm on, I want to say... It comes all the way down to local choices. So for one, we can examine how she, as a democratically elected local official, undermines democratic movements in those countries by giving the strongman cover. Two, it's how this leadership is manifest in her own lack of transparency in serving on various, you know, policymaking with impact kinds of boards around in the city and the region especially the Orange County Power Authority that was formed in the name of climate action. Too much irony wrapped up in that activity there. So I, I want to bring those kinds of manifestations of undermining democratic values and sort of giving strongman cover. It's happening right here in our midst. Have you thought about that through line? Um, I think you can see it actually occurring in, in many, many local government councils, local level arenas. So it's great that you bring up what's happening in Orange County, which is, as you say, our very own um, backyard, our doors. This is where, where we live and function. And you see it being very distressingly exercised, the cozying up of certain political leaders with far-right, anti-democratic energy companies, pharmaceutical companies, all sorts of big business, right? So it's not just electricity, but it's mining and logging and all sorts of other kinds of extractive capitalist practices. Yes, it is a problem here, and it means that we all have to pay very close attention to what's going on in our own arena, right, our own local community, because uh, it can happen very insidiously behind closed doors, as we've already seen in Orange County. Right, and, but, and I want us to think of the two-way street there, though, because... If I were, let's say, a democratic little d activist in Turkey in the, in the, under the Erdogan regime, and I'm seeing mm -hmm. this Southern California city mayor who is fraternizing with, um, you know, people that align with him, I, I would be pretty offended that, that she's giving those, that strongman Erdogan cover with her associations here and her acceptance of resources that they support her with in political work. Absolutely. You're absolutely so it's a correct. Two way. It is a, it's a global phenomenon, right? And you can right. see the connections across countries, across continents, uh, and across multinational corporations. All right, folks. And we are, I'm going to have her on next week. So that's, I'll mention that at the close of the show. But she has something to tell us. It's my show. So I will be happily uh, keeping control uh, in my hosting capacity, and it's going to be, I'm going to hold her accountable to these many things. It will be very, very interesting. So I Fantastic. Think, yeah. Well, I will be listening. <laughs> okay, well, please do, and tell me, tell me, uh, I'm crowdsourcing questions to her folks, including the brain trust of this faculty member right present here. So as a, <laughs> an unwieldy last question that has so many levels here, let's talk about prescriptions for this situation we're in. How might you or how are you importuning 
your colleagues and the administration throughout the UC to pull the levers they have. And then I'll ask about what you think partisan messaging prescriptions you'd like to offer, as well as messages for assignments for listeners. That's our last question, that multifaceted one. Okay, no, well, I mean, it's an excellent question, and I think that, you know, all of us are have to take a very active part in both monitoring our representatives in local council and as, you know, presidents of the country. But some of the things that I've been very active in uh, and something I'm very proud of, the University of California, the system-wide University of California, just very recently divested itself from all fossil fuels in its investment portfolios. So this is a huge, huge breakthrough because it is the largest university system in the United States, you know, 285,000 students, 10 campuses. Um, and it's sends a very powerful messages that public universities can take a stand, other public utilities can take a stand when they say that their investments are not going to be supporting fossil fuel projects at all. So um, the UC should be proud of what it's achieved. It's part of its strategic plan. Um, and I am very pleased, as I say, that this was just put through um, and agreed upon, voted upon in May of this year. So it's a very interesting development, and I'm hoping that other uh, universities, both public and private, across the United States will take similar kinds of action because, you know, in the UK, about 50% of the universities have divested themselves of fossil fuels, but not in the United States. So there's a great deal of improvement there that can be made. In terms of just individual people, I think, as I say, everyone has to be very diligent, make inquiries, make sure that you get out to vote, make sure that that vote counts. Hold your uh, representative leaders accountable and be very wary of misinformation, uh, disinformation about the climate crisis. It is a real climate crisis. It's not a hoax, as some um, former presidents, Donald Trump, would want to say. It's a hoax. It's, it's fake news. No, it's real. We're experiencing it, as I say, all the time on a grander scale. Um, and it is something we can't avoid thinking about in our immediate futures. So I want to go back to the point about how the the fossil fuel divestment occurred. I'm aware of there was a long jam in how those responsible for negotiating all that, they were very concerned about the immediate fiduciary responsibility they had to the immediate portfolio uh, owners. So it, in a, I don't know if I can portune you in just a short way of speaking. What broke that log jam? Are you privy to that? I don't know the exact, you know, mechanisms that broke it, but it broke. And I know that, that on each campus there was a great deal of groundswell by faculty and students to support it. So maybe it's just about very good messaging. Maybe it's about people realizing that climate crisis is on their doorstep and they can no longer ignore it. I'm not sure exactly, so you'll have to find another expert on the internal politics of the UC system on this front, but it is something that's very remarkable and a great move forward. Well, it is, and I'm going to own that I'm keeping track of many things, and this was sort of, this is going, this must have happened as we're going into the the heat of the California primary. This one got lost off. It wasn't on my radar. I knew it was uh, debated and that kind of being negotiated, but there's too much happening and that monumental <laughs> stuff. And it's also, uh, I'd like that we would get some direct Zot mail, uh, those of us that are uh, at regularly providing content here at the KUCI station. So, but that's reflecting a lot about how much is going on all at once. And uh, so, but I know someone, I'm going to pursue that listeners and Eve, uh, find out what we can uh, discover that how that log jam broke and take that on a dog and pony ride all over the country. That's really what we could do. So I don't know if you have a closing uh, sort of admonition of people to uh, to step up their game or, or a word to your colleagues. Say, uh, there's just a few more things I want you to, to do just, just to close. Oh, just to say that, um, you know, for scholars, we need to talk to the broader public and need to get our messages out about climate change emergencies uh, around the world and also in our local backyard. And for all listeners to, to get out and vote and be political, we have to be political to make a change and to transform what is a trajectory that's extremely scary and extremely horrifying in its possible 
possible, but I remain very optimistic that we can turn it around still and that there is there is hope, right? There is always hope. Well, and that is that is going to be the th- refrain. There, there has to be hope. Well, I want to thank you so very much, Eve Darian-Smith, for your valuable time and congratulate you once again on this book that you've just released. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. My guest was UCI professor of global and international studies, Eve Darren-Smith, bringing her brand new book, Global Burning, Rising Anti-Democracy and the Climate Crisis, published by Stanford University Press. It's available at your favorite independent book dealer. Don't go away. We'll be back with Brooke Aston Harper. We'll return with the upcoming play, Collection of Rage, a play in five Bettys. Don't go away. Rest in peace, Roman Ukrainian soldier, age 24, in eastern Ukraine. Thank you for staying tuned. I'm welcoming back my next guest, Brooke Aston Harper, to talk about the play she's directing at the Wayward Artist, Collection of Rage, a play in five Bettys. I'm going to give the long title because I want to rope everybody in. Collective Rage of Play and Five Bettys, in essence, a queer and occasionally hazardous exploration. Do you remember when you were in middle school and you read about Shackleton and how he explored the Antarctic? <laughs> Imagine the Antarctic as a doot and it's sort of like that. <laughs> so I, had, I, I can't do that because I already told Brooke we can, there's a word we cannot say on this show that's like yeah. every other word in there. So back to Brooke Harper is an arts professional activist, parent, advocate, and educator in Orange County. This is a short introduction. She's been here several times now. She was last on to take up her focus at the local school board in hopes to serve the historically underrepresented families and students who live in Placentia Yorba Linda, and the drama is not ceasing over there. The mounting culture wars around the critical race theory at the district, she's still at that. So today, it's about this marvelous new play, which we'll be able to see in the Wayward Artist Run July 15th through July 31st. We're doing this little interview now because, folks, you've got to put this down on your calendar. And it's at that 125 Broadway, beautiful downtown Santa Ana Theater there at the Grand Central Building. Brooke comes to us today. I think you're back in, you're in Placentia or are you in Santa Ana setting up that play? <laughs> well, right now I'm in Placentia. Okay. So welcome back to Ask a Leader, Brooke. Thank you, Claudia. It's nice to be back. Well, thank you. So I gave the long title. It's such a knowing and resonating and edgy play for the moment and then some. So, And I had such fun reading this out loud. I don't know if people do this, uh, and I, I think you can. You, don't have, you can do this in your own home, folks. So I, it's, it's tight, it's pithy, and it's rhythmic and so much more. Mm. I, I, I was trying to figure out. It's part, part vagina monologues and part, and I can't think, maybe culture clash or something. I, I, maybe, uh, that's the mixture. So tell us a little bit about the themes that Craig Tyrrell and you are working with this season, how this fits in at The Wayward Artist. Absolutely. Well, our theme this season is hope. And of course, this is a play with five women trying to figure out who they are inside and outside of the stereotypes that they fit into. And I just think it's a really interesting way to look at hope and moving forward and being your most authentic self. So Collective Rage is, is perfectly fits into our theme of hope for the season. So I, we're five Bettys. There's five characters. I don't think we're going to have any spoiler alert problems. There's so much that's going to be added to not just the script that one can read, but the, all of the decisions that Brooke is making with the whole production, the sound, the look, the feel, the rhythm and everything. So so tell us, though, about your casting process and did it change over the process? Because everybody's going to be fluid, gender, racial identity, and uh, ethnicity. I mean, everything's going to be fluid. But so how did that, how did you anchor things down just to get your cast in one place? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is to just be really, really clear on what the character is. And for people who maybe don't work in the business, you know, stories become universal because they are specific. So it's super important that you're honoring the specificity that's put into the script by the playwright in order to be able to relate. You know, if everyone was just the same, if we were just telling the story from this generic perspective, it's actually harder to relate. And so that's why it's so important to stay true to what the playwright was looking for. Um, there is a character that's specifically meant to be genderqueer. There is um, a character that's specifically supposed to be Latina. There's a character that's specifically supposed to be white. Um, and basically, you just put the call out and hope that you get what you're looking for. Um, I fortunately am very embedded in the Orange County theater scene. So I, you know got to make some calls to my friends and say, I'm not guaranteeing anything, but I want you to come in and audition for this show. And then we just in this business, we know where to post things. You post them on all of the industry websites and papers and hope that you get a cast. And let me tell you, oh, we sat down and did what's called the table read last night, where you sit down and just read the play. This cast is out of this world. I'm so excited. Oh, my gosh. I wish I was there. I, I mean, just a party of one reading this in preparation for the interview was, it, I was beyond, beyond, uh, you know. And I loved how you put it, that things become universal because something is specific. That is, that's, uh, that's to be done in cross-stitch in every gas bath. Every, <laughs> I'll start working on that's, it. That's, that's really good. That's a great <laughs> refrain. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, well, the table read. So how do they do with... The fluidity of these identities in there. I mean, that's what was blowing up there at the first exercise, the table read. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you do have to make some decisions, and those are hard decisions when you're at the casting table. But there was, specifically with the gender queer character, I did decide to go with a, a gender fluid actor over another actor who prefers she, her. And they both would have brought such interesting things to the character, but I think to live authentically in this specific play, it was really important that we cast the genderqueer character as someone who is gender fluid, um, as opposed to someone who identifies as a she, her, like I do. So, yeah, we, you, you know, you just have to make those decisions. And I got to tell you, especially with this one, uh, the casting is the, my least favorite part. <laughs> It's the hardest part. I just want to get to the part where we get to, into the rehearsal room and get to the meat of the show. But well, I would have thought this would have, this would have been very very hard to cast because of the the dynamic, the dynamism and the movement and the fluidity of it. that. That had to be really really hard to do. Um, you know what? I I, I had multiple options for every single role, so okay. it's interesting. It's hard to cast because it's hard to say. Yeah no to people and and you do feel like you're you know there's a lot of rejection in this business and and it's hard having been an actor for 20 years now turned director to remember what those that feels like when you really have your heart set on doing something and then you don't book it and so i still have so much like empathy and sympathy for the actor that truly the hardest part for me is knowing that i could have cast this two ways but eventually i have to go with my gut. Yeah. Um, but yeah. as far as getting the turnout, honestly, I have, I had, uh, I had 75 people submit for five roles. Wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah. So well, we, you know, we're really lucky and I'm really lucky. Craig, Craig has grown this company um, to have a good reputation here in Orange County. And, and I'm hoping that that continues and I hope that we can continue to grow the reputation of this company for just doing excellent work that makes people want to work with us. And I think we're, I think we're on the right track with that. So for those of you who've just tuned in, my guest is Brooke Aston Harper returning today to talk about her play that she's directing at the wayward artist. It's called collection of rage, a play in five Betty's written as copy. The playwright is Jen Silverman. They, them, Britain. Tickets are available now, folks. So I want to. So we talked a little bit about the this chemistry and all that. So let's hear a bit about Phyllis and Jen Silverman's had quite a career already, and uh, this, this. Uh, so a little bit about her, so we understand where these Bettys come from. 
Absolutely. So for the record, I've never met Jen Silverman. This is a play that is available to be done. Um, you know, our parallel season, Wayward Voices, we look for unpublished writers. For our main stage season, we generally go with published writers. And she, uh, they are just a, a knockout. They are, you know, well-established in this business. A writer, they went to... Um, you know, all the best programs, the, yeah. pro- the writing program in Iowa. Um, and they are such an interesting, uh, such an interesting interview, too. So if you, you know, when you're not listening to Claudia, everybody, you can go find interviews with Jen talking about their work and their perspective. Um, what I think is most interesting about Jen Silverman is that she did not grow up in the theater. You know, so many of us were theater kids and just continued on into our careers. But they were always a writer. And yes. um, ended up writing plays because they wanted to see themselves and they wanted to see um, incredible women characters on stage. And there's an interview that I love where they, they talk about how they never really thought of the theater as a male-dominated um, industry because their introduction to theater came so late and it was through incredibly powerful women. So I just think that's so interesting. So when you talk about the... The, the writing there that they have in their body of work. I've got to say the play in Five Bettys, it is so powerful, such a, a very economic sort of application of script. It's so powerful. She gets so much done with such a spare playwriting style. Oh, my gosh. Do you want to come direct this? It's so true. It is so true that I, I was looking for a play. Um, I'd been doing a lot of work. I'm Af- I'm black. So I'd been doing a lot of work that was for BIPOC people. And I really wanted to tell a different story. I wanted to tell a story about being a woman and being in this world as a woman. And so I just kind of Googled plays about being a woman. And, and I read the first three pages of this play and I was like, well, this is it. I have to do this. So that uh, opening monologue yeah. is, it just, it, it, it's so topical and and clear, and you know exactly who that woman is just from saying three lines, and it's just so funny. And the layers, all this, there there's so many cultural references to theater throughout this in such a pithy way. You go, oh, wait a minute, there is a story within a story within a story. Mm-hmm, and it just, so yeah. so here's, um, here is my uh, very obnoxious provocation thought. It's a thought question is uh, somebody could write a play that follows this and which would be entitled a dozen karens <laughs> well you and i can sit down and write that one okay well let's i just thought you know just to uh and that might be the kind of specificity that becomes universal and that we can undo the whole karen thing because I, I thought about that when somebody uh Oh, there's always another great Karen refrain there. So I don't know who's going to turn out. You sort of have a a self-selection at the Wayward Artist when I've gone there. Sort of the, the patrons are kind of familiar from time to time. But I, I because it's of its universality, do you think this play is going to grow on a much broader audience? I, I know you're going to try for that, but uh, how are you going to see that you can subversively sneak into some newer patrons coming there? Yeah, I mean, we're artists. We we love that our friends come and see our shows, but truly, truly, when we can put a story out there that reaches a complete stranger, that's that's the dream. I mean, of course, my friends are gonna like it, but I just I I love the idea of growing the theater community in Orange County specifically and making it a place that is a thriving and a place that actors can really feel that they have opportunity, and so. Of course, it is my absolute dream that we start attracting people who normally wouldn't even know that there's a theater inside a gallery, inside a promenade in Santa Ana. But we're there, and um, we're doing great work all the time. So I really do hope some of your listeners will come, you know, date night and uh, make make an evening of it and come see us. Maybe not first date. Maybe not first date, although I mean, you really, you really will know what you're getting into yeah, based on the response that's true. to this play. That, so, <laughs> and on the website, you do advise that only mature audiences are um, invite. Are you're suggesting only mature audiences? So, how are you going to handle that? I mean, are you 
is everybody going to be in on this only mature audience? Because not everybody's going to go to the website. They may get their tickets in another way. So how are you going to deal with that? Because uh, there are lots of female anatomy references, and I don't know how the director is going to deal with those anatomy references. And if we're going to see a full-fledged piece of anatomy there uh, walking on the stage, I have no idea. But how are you, how do directors deal with audience stuff? I mean, you always have someone who has an opinion. <laughs> You know, I have a production going at the Long Beach Playhouse that has um, a wedding night scene in it. And I think I kept it very tasteful. And yet the last time I went and watched a show of it, I I did hear gasps at one point And I thought, she's she's fully clothed. You're okay. Um, I think in general, you're always going to have people who have an opinion. But theater is meant to challenge it's meant to hold up a mirror to society and it's meant to challenge your preconceived notions about what is and isn't proper what is and isn't important what is and isn't worth telling and honestly everyone has their own their own um taste and and point of view and i think the cool thing about this play is that we represent so many points of view in the show itself. That's, that's right. That's, that's what I mean. It's sort of how can you secure a commitment from all patrons that stay with us, stay with us, that the kind of transformation in the, in the fluidity you're going to experience is going to be magical. Please, please stay with us. I mean, I don't know how you're going to get that done. I mean, I'm just hopeful that they're so entranced from minute one that they have to know what's next. Yeah. And so and there's timing. I always ask this of directors is the audience responses. So how, they're going to now we're going to have a live audience and inside the theater there. And so uh, so you're going to have to figure out the timing. How do you start fit, fitting that amount of responses that sort of pace the way the play is acted in a live setting? Yeah. Oh, my favorite thing to tell my actors when we're doing something that's humorous or flat out comical is that once we get it on its feet and we feel comfortable um, with the pacing and how we're going to play the show, um, I then remind them very gently, and don't forget, the audience has lines as well. And the audience does have lines. And, and once you really start working as an actor, you can feel the audience when you have them in the palm of your hand. You know, oh, they're going to laugh here. Let me take a pause okay, now I get to say my line. In response to that laugh, even though I'm not directly addressing them, you can feel that rhythm and that energy. I mean, that is the, the beauty of live theater, right, isn't right. it? The difference between a movie and live theater is that the audience has lines. Yeah, oh, lots of and them. Those, but I, yeah. I, I could just imagine that there might be even... Ones you don't anticipate, people are going to be responding to that. So it's, oh, that's it's, always that's always fun too. Uh, yeah, but, you yeah, know, you yeah, just, yeah. That's 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 why you do it more than once. I think I might go twice so I can size up different. Uh, <laughs> well, I want to warn you. Um, I think that's an old. Uh, we I, you have the old dates. I'm so sorry. It's the 15th to the 24th. Oh my gosh! I'm sorry. I did check the website, so maybe... no. I think I think we need to do some updating there. You I'll do have to need call to. My okay. <laughs> From July 15th to the July 24th at the Grand Central Arts Building at 125 North Broadway, Santa Ana, and yeah, that's important to do that. Okay, Craig, take care of that. Craig, Craig's yeah, personal assistant. Okay, who <laughs> after bringing the latte to him. So, well, what are the other details people need to know? The protocols. Around the pandemic unwinding, but the pandemic and is endemic, so it's still here. What are the yeah. sorts of provisions made and how other details for people to get to, to this show? Absolutely. So if you come into our theater, we do ask that you stay masked within the space of our theater. Um, Good. Out of con consideration for our actors who are performing unmasked, um, we, we, excuse me, we really do try to make it as safe as an environment as possible. Um, we do not want to be the source of a COVID outbreak. So we do ask that people are masked and they are required to either show proof of a negative COVID test within 48 hours or they can show a vaccination card. Um, that is a decision that we as a company decided on. Um, I know every theater in Orange County and in, the, in Southern California, it has their own policy but that is ours, and it will be in your email reminder. Please bring a negative COVID test or a, um, or a proof of vaccination, and please wear your mask. 
Um, theaters across Southern California have to cancel shows when a COVID case hits. It happened the company. here, Brooke. It happened at UCI. Yeah, it happened at the college. It happened at Wayward Artists during Toxic Avenger, our last main stage production. And um, so we just really ask that our our patrons understand that we are in in such a fragile state coming out of the pandemic being a live event that um, we're just trying to be a little extra, a little bit more than the letter of the law with our safety protocols and and that they'll respect that and, and still come and have a good time. Well, we haven't. Do any other details about it? We we uh, at you can go to info at thewaywardartist.org to ask questions, and the thewaywardartist.org is the website for the schedule, which Craig and others will be updating shortly, right, <laughs> Very immediately soon, yeah. after the show. And mm-hmm. mature audiences, and uh, the tickets are. I'm sure there there's brisk sales right now, but we'll just try to make sure they're even more so. Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing that I could really add is that I think you're going to fall in love with this, this not only this cast, but our company. And I hope that we will just continue to grow and that your listeners can become a part of that, that growth and become a part of the Wayward family. Very, very good. I cannot wait. July 15th plus cannot come soon enough. Well, I want to thank you, Brooke Aston Harper, for giving us another 25 minutes, best 25 minutes of your life on this show. And I'm looking forward to seeing everybody there. Thank you for appearing on Ask a Leader today. No problem. Thanks, Claudia. Thanks for um, promoting arts in Orange County. I really appreciate it. Got to. My guest was Brooke Aston Harper, director of the Wayward Artist Production, Collection of Rage, a play in five Bettys. And that is going to be its playwright uh, by Jen Silverman. Tickets available, as we said, uh, for the last half of July. That's July 15 through 24. That's my wrap. And for next week's show, as I mentioned earlier, Mayor Farrah Khan is going to be on. I've got more questions and we'll have time. And I can crowdsource my questions if you'll just email me, cshamba at kuci.org. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. 